We really want to just talk about what it means in these two weeks of this wisdom series about healthy eating and active living. And so I'm going to ask you just to kind of bow your head with me for a moment as we pray. Father, would you allow for our hearts to be really open to you and to your word and, and, and also to just the truths that you have revealed to us and are, are really for us to see all around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read to you from Proverbs 1, verses 20 and 21. This is really the foundational verse for this whole series on Streetwise, because this verse says, Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. The idea is that wisdom is not something, when it comes to the wisdom literature and Proverbs, there's a special revelation of God's Word, which is in His Word, which is so important for us to read so that we understand what His Word has to say and how it applies. But God is so good that He allows for us to know wisdom, all people to know wisdom, if they just look around. You can see the birds, and, 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 and he says, look at how the birds live, and your father cares for them. There's all kinds of ways you can see it in relationship with someone. And if you continue to hit the same thing over and over again, there's an opportunity to find wisdom there if you take responsibility and don't blame and begin to say, what can I do about my life to make changes here in the life around me? There's all kinds of ways that wisdom shouts When you're at work, there may be things that as you begin to um, be in relationship with other employees or with an employer and you see things come up, there are opportunities that God may be speaking to you. Wisdom is present. You know, God even uses enemies. He will actually use sometimes very cutting words of an enemy because you know what really cuts deep is truth that's just slightly not right. Or truth that's said in a way that's meant to injure. And if you take a hold of it and kind of go, God, help me hold it here. Help me learn. So what I want you to do is to stand for a moment because I think it's good to get your body engaged. It's a cold day. Someone told me earlier that it's not cold. It's just invigorating. So um, just be invigorated right now. They're talking about the uh, Mongolia and they're, they're much more invigorated than we are here. Um, but I want you to read these words with me because they follow verse 21. We're going to read 22 and 24 and then 29 and 33, and I'm going to ask you to read it with me. It begins, simpletons, how long will you wallow in ignorance? Cynics, how long will you feed your cynicism? Fools, how long will you refuse to learn? About face, I can revise your life. Look, I'm ready to pour out my spirit on you. I'm ready to tell you all I know, as it is. I've called, but you've turned a deaf ear. I've reached out to you, but you've ignored me because you hated knowledge and had nothing to do with the fear of God because you wouldn't take my advice and brushed aside all my offers to train you. Well, you've made your bet. Now lie in it. You wanted your own way. Now, how do you like it? Don't you see what happens, you simpletons, you fools? Carelessness kills. Complacency is murder. First, pay attention to me and then relax. Now you can take it easy. You're in good hands. 
What I find interesting in this passage of Scripture is this truth, that it says basically our choices will have consequences. It's a law. You reap what you sow. So there is a sense that when God is speaking to you and calling out to you in wisdom, and the fear of God we talk about here is this conscious awareness of God in our life, which calls for a heart of humility. And wisdom in any area of our life requires this attitude of humility this reverence of God, and then this openness, and not just intention, but his intention combined with a choice to do what he says. And when you do that, he says, over time, it begins to build a habit, and that habit begins to pay off so that you're in good hands and you can rest. Where on the other hand, he said, listen, You make choices, and those choices you make are like making your bed. You'll just have to lie in it. Well, it was interesting. Um, I had a a friend of our family. Her name is Naoma Fausch. She passed away at about 104 years of age just this last year. And her mind was clear, and her body was fairly strong up to about year 100, 101. And I remember that I would visit her often in her 90s, and she was a friend, so I would go, and I'd, I'd try to at least once a a quarter semester or so kind of get over into her area and and just spend some time with her and I I love talking to her she would always be reading she'd always ask me what's the latest book I've read and we'd talk about it and I'd say what did you read and she'd talk about it and she's in her 90s and and I remember one time I I just had this thought and I asked the question I said what do you attribute to your health and, and your ability to have lived as long as you can and and obviously she had said you know some of it is genetic I, I I would guess but then she she said to me it's really quite simple though this whole idea of living long and health and she says it, it's it's merely common sense and she went on to tell me that as a child she grew up on a farm in southern Minnesota and southern Minnesota on this farm they pretty much ate the fruits and vegetables they grew. They didn't often have a lot of meat. They would have meat for sure, though, on Sundays. Any farmers here who grew up on a farm, you know, kind of what that was like. Sunday was a big celebration. And she said, that was kind of our diet. And she said, I think I've been eating that way ever since. And then probably somewhat pays off as I read literature now. And then she said, just a couple other things. One is I walked every day and I did that for a long time. I'd walk about an hour every day. Now I'm at a point where I can maybe walk about a half hour, but I I get out there and I try and walk. And the other thing I do is I keep my mind sharp by reading. And I I also um, love having conversation with young people like you. And I was going, yeah, she was 90, you know, I just like a generation difference. But I couldn't help thinking of the wisdom verses in Proverbs that we had just read when I was thinking through this part of the message and actually writing down some of her thoughts. Wisdom calls aloud in the streets. Fools, how long we refuse to learn about faith. There's an opportunity to change what you're doing to, as the word of God might say, repent, which means to turn and head a different direction. To revise your life, it says in Proverbs, because... And then it makes this point, because you wouldn't take my advice. Here's the person who's more of a fool, the, the word simpleton, this idea that they're, they're, they're morally young and naive. Simpletons, you wouldn't take my advice. You brushed aside all my offers to train you and to, to build you up. Well, you've made your bed, now lie in it. You wanted your own way. Now, how do you like it? Carelessness kills. So there's this this desire to hear and to live in the consciousness of God, begin to hear his wisdom, and then to, to actually act on the wisdom that he brings into your life.
in a couple of weeks, as we talked about, we're going to do this healing challenge. This healing challenge is just, it's really for anybody who would like to, for a couple of weeks, just try and move into what we talked about last week, which is called um, healthy eating. The whole desire, this isn't about weight loss, it's about just living healthy lives that God calls us to do. So we talked about healthy eating last week. Well, today we're going to talk about active living. What does it mean to, to be given this body and to, to keep it flexible and to exercise so that it is in good shape? And, and what does that look like in your life? And why would we even want to do this? Why would you do a message on this? Someone asked me last week, you know, this is really strange. Someone uh, and said, you know, I, I never made a connection between spirituality and, and our body. And someone told me this week, uh, uh, one of the uh, people in our church who's a pastor and has preached quite a bit, he said, you know, I've never done a message like this. Well, I want to just begin by um, talking about this whole idea of active living is to raise an awareness of a truth that comes in God's word that as we get to the end of this teaching, I think it'll make sense to you. So I'm going to do a teaching and then some applications upon that teaching. So I encourage you to stay with me for a, for a second, because some of this is is kind of a theological thread. It's a theme that begins in Genesis that runs all the way to us today. And it's really important that you kind of understand this thread, because in some ways, it's, if you look at the, the, the story of, of God revealed to us in his word, as he relates to us, this is one facet of it that's really, really important. And the teaching is simply this. God loves you, and he wants to live within and through you. God loves you, and he wants to live within and through you. And it all begins in the garden. You know, God created Adam and Eve. He creates you and me because he's so deeply in love with us that he wants to live within and through us so that we can be all that God created us to be. He has created this with great potential in Adam and Eve. And so we see this story in the garden and the garden is all about God's presence and God is living with them. He is in them. He is living through them. There's this incredible fellowship that he has. And the garden is, is symbolic of all that until one day, it's Proverbs kind of says, these simpletons, these more morally naive, they had not yet been perfected in the sense of, of their virtue in their innocence these simpletons refused to take god's advice as he had given it and chose to do things in their own will in their own way thinking that their choice might bring better consequences and realities and we know that as being sin we know that as being our self-will it chooses against what god calls us to do it chooses against his wisdom And so in that temptation, they did then as a result of that, it broke fellowship with God. And in order for us to understand how incredible this breaking of fellowship was, it was this idea that God no longer lived within and through them. And so they he removes them from the garden, which symbolized all that so that now they are living on their own kind of away from him. And so the story of God continues because God so loves you. He so wants to live within and through you. He wants to live with his people. So he has a plan how he's going to make this happen and how he'll redeem things. So he shows up at one point in the history of this story, his story. And it's with a man called Abraham. So he says, I want to live with you, Abraham. I'll call you out of this city in which you're living in, which I want to begin to live within and through you. And I'm going to call you and your family out of this so that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Jacob's sons begin to experience the presence of God in a unique way that no one else does. And so what's interesting is that he takes Abraham and his family and after a time, they have, there's a famine, and they go into this place in Egypt. And in Egypt, they become not just a family. Now they become a people and a nation. 
And God shows up again to them as they start to cry out. They don't like the circumstances they're in. God shows up to a man named Moses so that he can take this people and a nation and begin to live with them again. So he takes them out of Egypt and he takes this people and nation. And as they're traveling, and you wonder if they're ever going to get to their place of destination, as they're traveling, they do what all people would do who are kind of nomads. They're sojourners. They build tents and they live in these tents. And, and God says, I'll tell you when to go and when to you know, leave a spot. And so they're living in these tents and God says to them, you know what? I want to live with in and through you. And so to make that known, I'm going to build my own little tent in the middle of all your tents. And this tent is going to be made of such fabric and such worthy items that what it will do is it will tell all people that I want to live in the center of my people. And I, as I live in the center of my people, I want them to know that what I live in is of great value and worth. I want them to see that I'm not living in some shabby tent. I'm living in this really incredibly wonderful tent. And so God you know, works, walks with them, lives with them, packs up the tent when they pack up the tent, puts the tent up again when, when the tents are being put up until they come into the land that they're called to dwell. And you move the story, kind of fast forward the video of the story a little bit, and you find out now that God has not only come to a, a person and a family, he has now come to a people and a nation. Now he comes to this person, David, and he takes this nation and wants to build a dynasty so that through it he can begin to rule this earth. And it's this incredible story that as they get in there, David, as they're all in their places of permanence, and each of them have found their territories and their tribes are situated where they should be, they each have been given towns, David decides to take a town and make it the capital city. And he so happens to choose Jerusalem, which is in the center of all Israel, which in some ways is the center of the world of that time, because it was like a major traffic way between Egypt and Mesopotamia. And so he takes this place, Jerusalem, and as he starts building his own palace and he has his own permanent home, David has a desire because it says he has a desire after God's own heart. God puts a desire in David's heart. And David says, God, I'd like to build you a permanent home. You're living in a tent. And so he goes, that's a good idea, David, but I'm not going to have you build it. Solomon will. But you can collect all the finances. You can get all the blueprints. You can put the building material together. And you can begin to get that all ready. So when it's time to be built, my home will be built in the center of my people, in the center of the city, in the center of this land. And it will be made of such quality material that when people look at it, they're going to know that where I live, I value this place that I live. Isn't that a cool story? And it's all set up as now you have this people in a family, this person in a family, this people in a nation, this nation in a dynasty for the king to come. And at some point in history, we read as you fast forward again that Jesus comes all for the purpose because God wants to live with in and through his people. And so he chooses to begin with the person, the first person, Jesus Christ. And so what you have is that you have God moving into this earth, making himself known before it was in the temple. The temple was built there. That was the locus. And you know what's interesting? I shared this in the first service. I'll share it in this one. That you know the nations of that day, they, only, um, they would have God's home living everywhere. There was only one nation where God lived in one spot. He didn't say build for me altars and temples everywhere. I want one temple in one place because I want people to know that this is where I dwell and this is where heaven intersects earth. This is where heaven invades earth. It's in this place, in this home, in the center of this world. When I was in Mongolia and we talked about Mongolia earlier, Mongolia 
is where we have missionaries, um, George and Terry Kenworthy. And I had the opportunity to go there. And I remember as I was traveling from the main city to the, where they are at, uh, to Soupbatter, from Uwenbatter to Soupbatter, it's a, it's a pretty good stretch of road. And as I was going, I was reminded of the Old Testament. Because as we went, at every high place, there was altars in these little blue cloths. And I said, what are those things, George? And he said, those are all the different places where they believe their gods live. Isn't it interesting? Because I'm going to make it very clear that his is where I'm going to live. So he shows up one day in this person called Jesus. And he is both God and man in the flesh of Jesus. And in Jesus, the locus of all his glory and his power and his love and his truth begins to dwell. And it's in this body of Jesus that he touches and he, and he reaches out to people. Here's the new home of God. It's a mobile temple. He is now said to be the temple of God. Which is why you see all this teaching about Jesus, about the temple. And that's really what got him crucified. That was one of the things that was the main statement against him. So that this body of Jesus at a certain point would be the temple and this temple would be broken and be put on a cross. And on that cross so that God could live in and, and through you, that this God could be with you forever. He takes away your sin and puts it all on Jesus. And as a result of that, the Holy Spirit is broken out of this vessel of Jesus and the Spirit of God comes from Jesus. And he says, I want to give this to all people. It's good that I leave because I want to begin to dwell in the temples of all my people, which is your body. He wants to dwell in you. And what's so interesting about that is he wants to dwell where? In your heart. He wants to be in the very center of your being. And what's so cool about that is he says, you know what? In that day and age, when I dwelt in a temple in a physical place, I had the ability to to influence a whole group of people in the world that they lived in. But now God wants to influence people. He dwells in the center of your heart so that he can influence every person in your world around you. Your mobile temples. And what you need to understand is that you are incredibly valuable to God. In the same way he had this tent that was made of precious materials, and then he made this permanent home of precious materials. And then he dwells in the body of Jesus, the the spotless, unblemished body of Jesus. He now pours out his spirit on every person who humbly wants to receive him so that he can live in your body. And your body is of great value and worth to God. He doesn't live in junk. Never will. Because he values it. Now, you may be in a place going, you know, I know my body is not in that great a shape. I know myself. I'm not that much of a holy person. You know what? God will live in any person who opens their heart. And here's what happens. He comes into your heart. He begins to renew your mind. He begins to restore your emotions. And then he begins to heal your body. That's your God. And so you see this picture. And, and what people don't realize is... is How important this was in the New Testament. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find at a certain point as the church begins to grow, there's a man named Stephen, and Stephen is stoned. This is not the medicinal stuff. Um, I'm talking about hard rocks. That when it was thrown, the rocks might injure you to death, and if they didn't, the weight of the stone would crush you so you could not breathe. So Stephen is stoned. This is what his charge is in chapter 6 of Acts, verses 12 through 14. It says that the people were stirred up, the religious leaders and religion scholars. They grabbed Stephen and took him before the high consul, the Sanhedrin, and they put forward their bribed witnesses to testify. This man talks nonstop against the holy place, which is the temple, the home of God, and against God's law, all the rules that come out of his house. 
We've even heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth would tear this place, the temple, down and throw out all the customs that Moses gave us. Blasphemy! And they started throwing stones. God did all this with one purpose because he wants to live within and through you. And he made this picture for us to see that he would start in Genesis and then as a result of the garden, they would be away from God. And he would take Abraham and he'd live with him. And then through Moses, he would live with this nation. And then through David, he would create this dynasty. And then through Jesus, he would make it very much known that he doesn't live in a, in, in a church. He doesn't live in a building. He lives in, in people. And Jesus was the first. And then he gave his spirit when he died on the cross so that his spirit could live in each of your lives. It's a very spiritual thing to care for your body. And I want to say this so clearly because I'm convicted of it. I'm not standing in like, and I, I kid once in a while, you know, I wear specially tailored clothes to hide my, my, my fat and stuff. So, you know, that kind of thing. We all know. We all know that we fail in these areas. But we're called to say, God, how do I respond? And I think sometimes we glibly say we are the hands and feet of Jesus, right? But you know that we're also the heart and arteries. We are also the stomach and, and waist. We are also the sinews and muscles. We are the body of Christ in a very spiritual sense. But his, his spirit lives in this, your temple. So let's just talk about some practical things. Um, before I do that, again, I'm going to read Corinthians, what Paul has to actually say about this, because this might just wake you up. Because I, 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 I hear from time to time, well, how does this actually apply messages like this? Listen to what Paul writes, and I'll read from the message. Since then, he's talking about since you've begun following Jesus, you've invited him, his spirit, into your body as a temple. You've been cleaned up and given a fresh start by Jesus, our master, our Messiah, and by our God present in us, the spirit. Just because something is technically legal doesn't mean that it's spiritually appropriate. If I went around doing whatever I thought I could get by with, I'd be a slave to my whims or appetites. You know the old saying, first you eat to live, then you live to eat. Well, it may be true that the body is only a temporary thing, but that's no excuse for stuffing your body with food or indulging it with sex. Since the master honors you with a body, honor him with your body. God honored the master's body by raising it from the grave. He'll treat yours with the same resurrection power. Until that time, remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity, value as the master's body. You wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse, would you? I should hope not. So let's get really practical. The first thing I just want to say is God values you deeply. You've heard that already. You've, you've heard this fact. But the question is, he values all of you. Do you? Do you value yourself? God wants to live with, in, and through you. Do you want to live with yourself, in, and through yourself in that sense? I was kidding around. As I, even as I wrote this, I said, guess what? You are the one person you will never get away from. You know how you, you know, kind of, I just can't stand. I just kind of get. Some people live their life going, I wish I wasn't me. I would love to get away from me. 
I don't like the way I am. I don't like the way my body is. And, and I just don't want to live with me. And I think what Jesus has to say is this. It's time that you begin to truly love yourself and see yourself as God sees you and begin to accept and value yourself the way God does. Because if you don't value yourself, you're not going to care for yourself. When you look in the mirror, you may not like what you see, but guess what God does? He sees all of you. He understands all of you. He sees your motivations. He sees your outright sin and he still loves you. You can't you can't get away from that. What he wants to say is, are you ready to let me move into your heart in such a way that those areas that you feel shame in, those areas that 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 cause you to not want to live with yourself, let me come in and and begin this little path, not of your self-improvement. It's not a self-improvement plan. The Bible's not a self-improvement plan. It is a plan of God transformation. It is this opening your heart to him. He comes into your heart and as he begins to take your heart and your mind, he renews it. And as he renews your mind with what is truth, the truth begins to affect your emotional state as well as it begins to have an impact on your body. It is not about self-improvement. It is about God transformation by opening your heart and saying, I want to live in a conscious awareness of the wisdom of God. And when the wisdom of God is there, I want to make choices that make a difference in the way that I live. And so, do you value your body? You're so valuable to God that He actually paid with His own life of His Son so that you might be His treasured possession. If you read in 1 Corinthians 6, just a little further on from that passage I just read, it says in verse, eight, in verse 19 and 20, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? Catch this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Peter says it this way, a little more clearly about what the price is. He says in verse, um, chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You know, gold might be real valuable today. It's not with these valuable things that, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, his body, like a lamb without blemish or defect, as the message puts it, your life is a journey. You must travel with a deep consciousness of God. It costs God plenty to get you out of that dead-end, empty-headed life you grew up in. He paid with Christ's sacred blood, you know. He died like an unblemished, sacrificial lamb. And this was no afterthought. Even though it has only lately, at the end of the age, has become public knowledge. Did you know that God always knew he was going to do this for you? That was his plan from Genesis the moment he saw that. So I have to ask you very honestly, if you're holding yourself in a place of unforgiveness, God isn't. He has forgiven you of your sin if you admit it and acknowledge it and just say, God, I want you in my life and I want to live this differently. I need you. Jesus shed his blood, endured immense suffering, endured shame and pain for for the all of you, and I have to ask you, do you believe that? Are you as committed to you as God is to you? I was handed a note after the service this last Sunday, and I asked this person if I could share this, and they said, please, by all means, if it helps someone. They wrote, Pastor, I am listening to your message about consumption and health, and all of my life I have struggled with weight. A few years back, I lost 100 pounds and was actually featured in Prevention Magazine. But then all the things went south for me. It all fell apart because of what was happening at work. 
And as the pressure increased, I ate. I, I still get emotional. I got emotional when I read this. His, this person says something, if you haven't experienced this kind of brokenness in a family upraising, if you haven't experienced this kind of pain, it's really easy to get arrogant and, and judgmental about looking at people's their appearances and what they do, which none of us have a right to do. She writes, as the pressure increased, I ate. That is what I did growing up. It was mo- so much easier to stuff my face to confront, than confront my feelings. You can't stop an abusive alcoholic father, so eat and hide. As a child, you can't change your family's behavior, so eat. And when work is overwhelming as it was, I did what I learned. I ate. And then, at a certain point, I went back to, my, uh, to what my doctor and God showed me. Just take away a bad habit and add a good. And let me just tell you, if you're going to work on a bad habit, you always got to replace it with a good because it creates a vacuum. So you need to put a good one. She says, I did what the doctor and God had showed me a while back. Take away a bad habit and add a good. Well, that bad habit I'm working on is shame. Interesting that you would mention in your message shame because that is what triggers so much of my overeating. And I have to share with you with many people who have been broken, who live with a sense of shame. It is that shame that triggers so many things. That is why some people, you can't even look in a mirror and say, God's crazy about me. I am too. And she, she writes, it's interesting you mentioned this because even after I gained a lot of weight after that time, because, you know, part of this is you fail and you try again, and you fail and, you try, and God then over time begins to work in you. Even after I gained a lot of weight again and felt ashamed, people were gracious in not bringing it to my attention, but they didn't need to. For each morning, I would belittle myself and beat myself up. Sound familiar? And then one day the Holy Spirit said to me, you are better than this. This is where God sometimes breaks in out of just pure grace. Pastor, she writes, if I'm going to lose weight, then I need to remember who I am in Christ, not who I think I am. The thing I need to learn is that food and emotion should not control me. God should. That's the key. So pray for me that shame doesn't win and pray for me that my good habit of seeking uh, of seeing God as he sees me becomes an overwhelming habit. Because God didn't make a mistake. He told me that he made a perfect creation created in his image. What a beautiful thought. And someone gave me this thought. Um, uh, someone else um, shared with me these words from pastor, author Bill Johnson, who says this. This is a great thing. What a beautiful. Listen to this. You can't afford to have one thought about yourself that God does not have about you. I think that's really true. You cannot afford to have one thought about yourself that God does not have about you. And then this person continues. When I look in the mirror, I want to see Christ in me. I want to walk away knowing that God is in control. I want to walk away knowing that no matter what my body looks like, I'm victorious in Christ in how he sees me. And then I know I will be new, a new person and whatever follows will be good because it comes from him. Do you value yourself as God does? He didn't create a temple that looked really good just because he likes that kind of place. He created it to teach us that where he lives, where he lives, he values deeply. And he lives in you and he values you deeply. There's another little truth along with this that I mentioned just a little bit earlier. You treasure what you value. 
So if God values this much, very practical application, then you need to understand if he does, you can treasure what he values and what you then can value. You will treasure what you value. It's just a law of, of, of life. It's a, it's, it's a wisdom fact. It's a simple, common sense thing. If you value something, you'll take care of it. I've only once in my life owned a brand new car. Anybody ever done that where you just the smell of the car? You know, it's just nice. And you look at it, it's pristine, it's perfect, everything's great, there's not a scratch on it. You just, you drive it out. I'm driving this Jeep Cherokee out and, and just, it's green, it's forest green, I'm loving it. And I'm going, man, God, I'm going to take care of this thing. And I drive it, and because you know what? What you value, you care for. And then over time, right? Get some nicks and scratches and... You know, because if you have a junker, what does it matter, right? If you get another scratch on it. And I think that's really true for attitude. Our attitude can be very much like, you know, God, I'm, my body is kind of a junker. It's got some scratches on it. You know, it doesn't really matter. But do you know that you also value what someone else values and gives to you? I had the opportunity to drive someone else's car once. And you know what? I was driving this car. Um, and we were staying with this person for a week, and they let me keep the, and use the car for a week. They said, no, I want you to use this one. I'm just going to use it. It was like an eighty dollars to $100,000 car. I mean, I don't know anything about cars. I can hardly tell you anything. All I knew is that when I got in that thing and it was someone else's owned it, I went, boy, I'm going to take care of this thing. But you know what? I also have the same way that I treat. I have my daughter has a little blanket that she used to use when she's a little kid. And today it's just filled with holes. And I want to tell you, when she was younger and we left that blanket at Grandpa and Grandma's, we would drive all the way back to get it. So I just want to tell you, I don't care if it's pristine and brand new. I don't care if it's a junker. If someone else owns it, it's not yours. And it's the value of it is what they value in it. So, friends, some of you may have more dents and scratches than others. You may be thinking, who cares what kind of fuel I put in it? Who cares whether I have an active life, keep my body stretched and exercise, but God does because he values it because it's not your own. He purchased it. And he values this body he has given you and is even aware that over time it will get dents and scratches. But remember, he paid for your body, your soul and spirit. It's his and life will happen. You will have these dents and you will have these scratches, but you're still called to steward it. So you treasure what you value. So God values it. You treasure what you value. Let me just share with you the value of a healthy body from a couple others' perspectives, okay? I read a book um, uh, when I was 47 years of age. I wasn't really taking good care of myself, and it was called Younger Next Year. And so the idea that you can live to your 80 as if you were like 50. And I thought, wow, that's kind of an interesting concept. So I read this book. And in, in its premise is this, that most people live from age 20 to age 50, 30 years, and they don't pay a lot of attention to what they eat or what they do with their body, right? It's like my um, wife's dad at one point. He looked at me when I was in my 20s and I was eating a couple platefuls of stuff. And he goes, yeah, I used to eat like that with the idea that you won't be doing that someday. See, you can live for 30 years to have a 50, and then at some point your choices will begin to catch up to you because the car, the vehicle, isn't quite what it was. Here's their point. Here's the guy's point, and it really hit me between the eyes. 
Most people that they don't realize, if the lifespan, you, most people live to about 80. Do you know what? You're going to live another 30 years from 50 to 80, and you have a choice. You can decide how you're going to live those next 30 years. You can live it with a lot of aches and pains, and they did studies, and the studies showed that except for illness that would come in or accidents that would happen, most people, if you're just living a normal life from 50 to 80, it kind of, the, the plane goes like this and drops at 80. But if you don't take care of your body, you don't exercise, you don't eat healthy, you don't uh, reduce the stress, it drops very quickly. So here's my point when you moan and you groan about the aches and pains in your body some of it's just you're getting older but some of it if you're not taking care of it and you're making choices you're basically moaning and groaning about your own choices right okay those of you who get investment you understand if you take some money and you invest it in the future by the choices you make now you know and you believe that if you invest it in the right place it will probably be there for you to help you at some point, correct? You guys, I'm sorry, away? Yes? Oh, we got a bunch of people in debt or something. I don't know. Or you don't believe it. But you know what? By the choices you make, by what you do with your body, what you put into your body, you are making a retirement, so to speak, investment that is going to pay off. And it will either be there someday or not. So I just challenge you to think of the word of God from that standpoint alone. If you want to selfishly look at it, there's a value to a healthy body that God calls us to. And that is to be aware of the choices we make today for your own personal selfish reasons. But there's also a reason for how you serve God. Part of the reason you have this healthy vehicle and body is because it's been given to you to impact the world around you. And Paul was very much aware of that. In fact, at one point, he says this in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 and 27. He says this, I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. The message says, I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I am staying alert and in top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping, telling everyone else about it, and then missing out myself. And it's not only what you can do for God. You can impact God as your body is healthy. This, for me, is another very personal reason, but I think it's one that we all can relate to. As I began to think about the value of the body and the healthy reasons to value the body for me, I have a daughter who soon will be getting married, and God willing, both my daughters will, and they'll have kids if that's what God desires. And I want to be a grandparent that can play with those kids. I want to be able to throw a ball with them. I want to be able to play hide-and-seek and do the stupid things that I used to do with my kids and kind of hide in the small place in the corner You know, it's not just for yourself and your own aches and pains. It's also for what God has in store for you in his own desire to work through you. And it's also a loving, really good thing to value for your own family, those that you live with. And the decisions you make now about what you put into it and what you do with your body will impact things later on. And there's the last thing I'm going to share with you. And I'm going to ask the band to come forward at this time. I just want to share with you one habit can change many habits. It's really the most really practical part of this in one sense. Because you may get overwhelmed in thinking about, you know, all the different things. Because what I want you to pay attention to is to hear God and the wisdom he wants for you in your life. And it may not be about your eating or your exercise or your your active living as much right now. It may be about the series that we did enjoy. It may be about just learning to have wisdom. It may be that you need to spend time with God in quiet. I don't know what it is, but you know this one habit can change many habits. 
There is what many have come to find out in research. There are what they call keystone habits that if you tackle one, it can actually change a whole constellation of habits in your life. And in this book, uh, by its current best-selling book called The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, he writes this. Take, for instance, studies from the past decades examining the impact of exercise on daily routines. When people start habitually exercising, even as infrequently as once a week, they start changing other unrelated patterns in their life, often unknowingly. Typically, people who exercise start eating better and becoming more productive at work. They smoke less and show more patience with colleagues and family. They use their credit cards less frequently and they say they feel less stressed. It's not completely clear why. But for many people, exercise is one of those keystone habits that trigger widespread change. Exercise spills over, says, says James Prochaska, a University of Rhode Island researcher. He says there's something about it that makes other good habits easier. Now I want to go back to this person, we'll conclude with this, who shared with us in her story about the shame and about her eating. She writes, after the Holy Spirit said to me, you are better than this. This is what the person wrote next. I didn't write, read this. The person said this. It seems strange to say, but the first thing I did, here's the keystone habit for this person, was apply for a job. It was important for me to know I was capable of working and doing a good job and doing it well. I applied, got the job. That happened last summer. I'm 27 pounds thinner. I'm off two depression medicines. I'm off my cholesterol medicine. I'm exercising again, and I'm again listening to God about who I am in Him. And you go, well, I work. What's the one for me? Well, for work, there was something related to her sense of self-worth and self-esteem that actually fought against that sense of shame. And God is so good, He'll allow us to do things. But here's the honest truth. You have been purchased by a, by a price. You, the, the life of Jesus has been given for you. It is a fact that you are valuable. In His eyes, you are completely, 100% loved as He sees you right now. That's the truth. And when you do that, it begins to release shame. And then step into the place God's directing you. It may be that keystone habit can start affecting a whole lot of other things in your life. I'm going to have you think about that as we move to worship.